Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, when I was at university, um, the professor of music walked into the room and he took out an LP, as you did in those days, and he put it on the um, turntable. And he asked us all music students, probably about 15 of us, um, who composed this? Now, needless to say, none of us gave us the right answer. But even if you did give the right answer, you couldn't justify it. <laughs> you just couldn't. So there is no right answer. <laughs> well, of course, there is a right answer. Uh, does anyone know that particular movement? It must be the most remarkable slow movement, one of the most remarkable slow movements in all of music history, I would say, especially as it was written by Joseph Haydn. Could you believe that? None of us could. The one answer that was, that was the most interesting answer that people gave was Chopin. 
Okay, and they said Chopin for um, because of the um, elegantly uh, ornamented violin part, which felt very free. You know, but of course Chopin didn't write anything for string quartet, did he? You know, it's obviously written for a string quartet. You know, it's a, it's a, it's very much not piano music. Um, so so that the sort of the um, the um, as it were improvisatory nature of the violin part, because it starts off with a series of notes which of chords really it's a harmony eight bars of, of, of harmonic changes rather solemn isn't it and uh, and sort of you know um, um, quasi tragic you might say and then the harmony repeats itself but at the end of the first bar Violin, first violin enters as though it's a gypsy has moved into the room <laughs> and is playing gypsy. It is gypsy music, isn't it? Without any doubt. Um, the, uh, the, it, one of the things that is most unusual about it is its rhythmic irregularity because it's completely not what you would expect in classical style. To put it mildly, I mean, to put it really mildly, um, for example, the, the, the rhythm ba da 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 dum palm and then sixes da 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 fours. And I'm talking about the quaver beat being divided into these portions. So, dee da dee da, four, four, three, three, six, three, four, which gives the impression of someone making it up as they go along because it's so incredibly irregular, isn't it? Um, uh, and even more here, um, it's the, really the same harmonic pattern re repeated three times, except in the middle. It goes temporarily to the major, but then the violin. You know, and the violin has to play it as though he's making it up on the spot, doesn't he? You know. So why might Haydn write a gypsy movement? Yes, he lived in. He lived. He would have understood and heard Hungarian gypsy music when he was at this time an employee of the Esterházy family in um, in Ester, in the Esterházy Palace in the Hungarian Plain. And the first violinist of his orchestra was a man called Johann Tost. And Tost, T-O-S-T, um, by the way, uh, was a fantastic fiddle player. And you can hear that, can't you? He's written a he's written a sort of virtuoso solo part for the violin. But in terms of classical style, all the things you mention about classical style of its proportion, symmetry, and balance, and coolness, it has none of those things, does it? None, in a, in a most radical way. And in fact, if you were going to plump it into a period, you'd say it was probably romantic, wouldn't you? Yeah, it almost almost sounds, you know, uh, it was like this. Uh, Hungarian Rhapsody style of list, isn't it? Sort of mock gypsy, as it were. Or... No. And you don't really associate Haydn with that sort of behaviour, do you? Um, you think he's better behaved than that, even though he's very subversive. And I talked about subversion, but that's a very extreme subversiveness, isn't it? And then the other th thing that's so wonderful are the dissonances that come from the um, collision between the melody and the harmony, like most particularly at the very end. And then there's an, what we call an interrupted cadence. The string players, second violin, viola, and cello slide up like that. 
they go from that chord to that chord, which is the dominant to the flattened submediant. I know you like that sort of information. But then the violin, first violin comes in on this note. Yes? It's a really ringing dissonance, isn't it? And so on. And then creeping into the cadence. And it's quite reluctant to leave its place. Let me just play you the end of it and then tell you what happens next, because then it becomes very intriguing. Here's the very end of that adagio. Sorry. So, minuet. And of course, the movement I'm playing you is not the first movement of a string quartet, it's the second movement, it's the slow movement. In effect, it's the slow introduction to the minuet, because it goes continuously from the slow movement into the minuet. And when you get to the minuet, you think, well, I am now back in my powdered wigs, long gowns and, ge and elegant gestures, and that's very sort of controlled, isn't it? Or so you think. Because again, there again, Haydn leads you to expect certain things. And incidentally, apparently, this tune to a musical clock in the Esterhazy household. <laughs> so he's sort of parodying it in a way. But one of the things, one of the things it, um, it, when he starts off, it leads you to expect things to be regular because it goes... Yeah. But listen on... You get the joke, yeah? Because instead of doing, instead of doing, well, oh, it's, it's a bit subtle, it's a bit subtle, but it's, he doesn't do that, he does. Uh, he adds another bar in between it. So therefore it becomes irregular. Yeah, so instead of dee dum ba da dum it becomes dee dum bee dum ba da dum and then bum ba dum bum 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 bum. Yeah, so he's, he's teasing you with your sense of time, you know? And I talked last week about the idea, you know, why are these um, three composers so dominant in this period? Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, 1750, well, 1730 to 1830, you know, who else is there? You know, just, they just don't go, they just don't appear, do they? They really don't. And, you, and if they do, you know, Dittersdorf, Pleyel and so on, you can ignore them. You, can, you really can, because there's so much of great music from these three composers. And the one thing that seems to, um, you know, seems to mark them out is their subversion of the style. Which is paradoxical in a way, because how can you have a style if you're subverting it all the time? But you, you know what I mean? There's a way that you understand what to expect in classical music. You listen to it and you think, I know what's going to happen next. And then suddenly you don't. This is quite a subtle one, really, that, 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 little, that little movement there. And especially to us, our, our ears, because we listen to other sorts of music, you know, we're not just living in the time of um, Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven and, and, and hearing, experiencing that music. We hear lots of, we've heard Wagner Lennon, McCartney, Schoenberg, Stockhausen, a lot, haven't we? You know, so our ears are not quite so attuned to the particular language of the time. But if you only knew that language, you'd really know what to expect totally, wouldn't you? So that sort of... So the first subversion is the idea of having an improvised violin line in, over a slow-changing 
pattern of notes, which is much more... The idea of improvisation uh, in, in music is quite prevalent in Baroque music, because if you, you, know, if you think of this... That's simply a series of improvisations. He says, I'm going to take this chord sequence and improvise over it, and he writes it down, and that's what you get, isn't it? But classical music doesn't work like that. It's much more structured, it's much more organised. You know, it doesn't have that free feeling, but here it does. Yeah, Haydn really breaks down the mould. It's unusual in Haydn to It's very melodic, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, so and Haydn's known for little, yeah, motivic things, really. You know, not long cantabile. Well, they, there's an even more big example of that later on in this same amazing quartet. This is Opus 54, number two, no nickname. Except the toast, it's one of the toast quartets, but the Opus 54 and 64 quartets are all dedicated to toast, so they're all toast quartets, as are Opus 55. So it doesn't help, does it? You're lost. It's Opus 54, number two. Un yeah, oh yes, did I write it in? Good, that's good. Okay, let's, okay, and then, okay, so a little bit of subversion in the minuet, because he, he sets the clock ticking, ticking. Then, in the trio, every minuet has its own contrasting second section, or third section, you might say, which is a trio. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? Because the minuet is in two sections, each with repeating. And interestingly enough, minuets show, show tendencies of sonata form, in that the middle section, the second section, tends to sound like a development section. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, a development section takes things further, churns them up a little bit. So he starts his minuet like this. So it's like a mini development section, which then, and then he repeats the. It's like an ABA, really, but it's only in a, only in a on, on a tiny scale. But the trio section is massively contrasting. But listen to what he does in the trio section, which is much more subversive. It positively cries out, doesn't it, in pain. It's this. You'll never hear that sound in Mozart. You really won't. So if you, if you hear that passage and think, you know, is it Haydn or Mozart? Well, it can only be Haydn because it's too extreme. And then it behaves itself. There's a decorum in classical music, isn't there? You know, you do something really bad and you behave and then you immediately, you, give, you have a penance. Okay, so his penance is this. Because he's put you through the works. It's just it's the, the collision of the harmonies. And of course, that collision of the harmonies reminds us of the slow movement, doesn't it? We've just experienced this extraordinary slow movement, which is unparalleled in Haydn, and it's not to be repeated. And it's certainly nothing like it appears in any other classical composer. Not, not, the, the next time, can anyone think of another work which has a, a chamber work? This is a difficult question. A chamber work uh, with a Hungarian gypsy influence, uh, which is not a string quartet, but involves a string quartet. 
Possibly, although I can think of something more. What about this? Not piano quintet, but the clarinet quintet, which has a gypsy improvisation in the slow movement. Yeah, quasi-Hungarian. Of course, Brahms had that Hungarian link as well, didn't he? But this is, in in sense, slight, slightly more. It's a bit more, isn't it, really? And in the in the second half, even more. even more painful harmonies. Yes, please. Why do you say that that trio is too extreme for Mozart? Because Mozart wrote some fairly unconventional. Yes, it, no, it's more, it's more the, ex the extremity of expression and the harmony at that point. Yes, he does, absolutely. But it's more, more disguised within the texture, isn't it? It sort of stands out in Haydn. You know, he suddenly punches you with it. You know. But maybe no, you know. Perhaps that's perhaps that's a bit of a generalisation. About there are some. There, it's it's. The, the, I, I like this expression though that people say that you know um, you're in Mozart, uh, you come across something and um, it's a sort of expectation, you know. And you know, but with Haydn, it's constant surprises. You know, he go he de he deliberately surprises you in that, that because he starts off in so in such. Yeah. It is, and much more controlled, and yeah, and suddenly he bursts out of it. But Haydn, of course, Mozart does. Um, uh, Mozart's very influenced by Haydn, and in the six Haydn quartets, he does all sorts of Haydn-esque things, which are sort of untypically un-Mozartian, un as it were, which is interesting. But here's an, there's another. There's some interesting parallels between this piece and several two other Mozart pieces, which I'll bring up in a minute. But um, subversion is also apparent in the first movement. Now, the first movement opens with um, a display of um, classical harmony per se in terms of its traditional um, structure. It starts with a, uh, as it, here it is, here it is. It starts with a tonic chord. It shows you very clearly that you're in C major. You know, you, no question. Okay, and he's modulated, he, well, he hasn't modulated, he starts on the chord of one and goes to the chord of five, the dominant. So he then picks it up on the dominant 
and goes back to the tonic. So he's done happy birthday to you. Yeah, so he's gone. Five. And then he starts on five. So, because happy birthday is one to five, five to one, and that's exactly what he's done. Um, it's slightly unconventional in its structure in that it's a five-bar phrase with a one-bar rest. One, two, three, four, five, one. One, two, three, four, five, one. Then, then. This is the big shock, okay? I'll just play that again. But what happens in bar 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 13 is the moment of its nemesis. Right, and he's now in the key of A flat major. Yep, so he's in C, G, G, C. That's a shocking sound, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because it doesn't appear, A flat major doesn't appear anywhere in the key of C. And if you go around your circle of fifths, you discover that 12 o'clock is C, 8 o'clock is A flat major. Yeah, that's a long way around, isn't it? In other words, in order to go from C major to A flat, you have to work your th way through a lot of harmonies. Yeah. In other words, you can't just bang down a harmony and expect to get away with it, because it has implications, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's a quite a shocking one. Yeah, so it's called the flat submediant. Yeah, <laughs> C major. We're in this key of C. every every um, every note has a has a technical name: tonic, supertonic, mediant, subdominant, dominant, subdominant, submediant. Sorry, submediant, superton, uh, leading note. Uh, so this, the submediant is the sixth degree of the scale. And then you flatten it. Yeah. So it's quite remote. In other words, the point is that it's remoteness. And once you start to mess around with remoter keys, you start to break down the certainty of the style. Yeah. Because I mentioned the other week that, uh, last week, that you know, people are criticised in pop music for using three, three, or four, three chords, you know, one, four, or five. But that's what Mozart and Haydn do most of the time. And when they don't, it becomes really interesting, really fascinating. So that's A flat major is a really subversive moment and a, and a real shocker, you know, suddenly comes out of the blue. Um, and he spends a lot of time then trying to sort himself out. The, the nice thing about, I, I'm not sure if you want to know this, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you anyway. Um, you can create a really nice cadence using the flat submediant by doing this. Yeah, can you hear that? It's really neat. It's called an augmented sixth chord. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I'll tell you what's really interesting about this. It shows you in a real way, especially if you're a string player, you know, when, when you play an F sharp on a string instrument, you're not pressing down a key which says F sharp, which is a, what basically what a piano does, isn't it? You know, that, F, that note's always F sharp. But you can create the note with your finger, can't you? Just as you can if you're a singer. And we can't do that on the piano. We have to put up with what we've got. Um, and the, um, the strange thing about this is that if I play the bottom note of that chord, which the cello has, which is an A flat, okay, but then I tell you that, um, that if, I, if I then just play that, <coughs> that interval to you, yeah, you would tell me if I played it. And if this is a quiz, 
that was a, that's called that interval is called a minor seventh. Okay. In other words, the bottom note is A and the top note is some sort of G. So it's A flat to G flat. Okay. Now Haydn doesn't write it like that. He writes the top note as F sharp. Okay. Now that now this really tells you that F sharp and G flat aren't the same note because um, if this was A flat to G flat, the only way you could resolve it as a chord is that like that. Yes. That's because the G flat must fall. Yeah. But he doesn't. Haydn doesn't do that. He's not the. Of course, you know this is a common um, harmonic move that lots of composers have used. Because it's F sharp, the sharp has to rise upwards. Yeah. And that all you can say then is F sharp and G flat aren't the same note, are they? Even though they sound the same, they don't behave the same. Yeah. So and the, and the sound that the chord that comes out of that is this. But he couldn't do that if he'd written as G flat, because it wouldn't make any sense. You think, you know, to, as a musician, you think that's mad. It doesn't. But as an F sharp, it has to rise up. Okay, is an, is a, does anyone understand that? <laughs> bad luck, you know, bad luck. It's very hard to understand. But it's really to be. It really does prove that the notes um, on the piano are not the same notes as you play in a string string quartet. Yeah, they're stuck. You're stuck there. Exactly, exactly. You think of them like that. Yeah, yeah. And they behave like that. Yeah, yeah. And, but what it, it also shows you how important what you see on the page is as a musician. You know, you see an F sharp there, and then you see the you hear the A flat below, and you know that is that. And if you saw a G flat, you go back down to that. Yeah, and both make perfect sense and they're perfectly logical. But um, but that, that's that's how Haydn gets out of that little conundrum. I'll just play that again, and uh, I'll play from the beginning into the A flat. You're you're not particularly shocked, of course. We, we, we none of us are. But the Esterhazy, well, you know. As I spoke about head string quartets, really, it wasn't really music written for audiences. Big, it didn't have concerts of string quartets. It would have been a small gathering. And really, of course, string quartets are written for the players themselves, not for the audience. It's rather different, isn't it? If you're an or you go to an orchestral concert and you feel the players are projecting out to you, aren't they? But when you go and hear a string quartet, you're eavesdropping in a sense, aren't you? You're not on a private conversation. And this conversational way, you know, this way of um, composing string quartets is very much like thinking about music being abstract. I read that um, very um, rather sharp um, Hans Keller article, uh, passage, didn't I, about how you should think not about, you should think music, not about music. And he was very critical of people who think about music, but actually what you do is you think music. So that's what Haydn's doing. As he's writing his quartets, he's thinking music and trying a few things out. Has to be said that he succeeds pretty well, doesn't he? The other thing, um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just play this and then I'll play you the beginning of Mozart's string quintet in C major, Kirchhoff 515. Now, Mozart does something which is subversive, but it's much more gentle in a way. But I'll, I'll show, show you what I mean. But here's, um, here's the Haydn again, up, to the, up, up and a little bit past the A-flat major submediate intervention. he's out of trouble you know and the point that he started so conventionally just on one and five shows you that he's leading you to expect not what happened yeah almost anything but he's you know you think well it's going to be it's fine he's not going to do that to me but he does do it to you um now um 
the, the, the idea that Mozart had, had listened to Haydn um, is, I think, uh, shown a little bit by um, the beginning of his string quintet in C major. And he does exactly the same thing. This is Mozart. Sorry, I'm, I'm breaking the rules completely. I'm talking about a string quintet. String, Mozart's string quintets are even greater than his quartets. They're the sublimest of chamber music. Um, but they're written for two violas. So the string quartet is, has an additional member, but not a cello, as in the Schubert quintet, but an additional viola. But what Mozart does is exactly the same thing as Haydn in this. Um, he gives you um, very strong... idea of being in C major, then goes to the dominant, and then goes back to the tonic, like this. His surprise is different. He gives you a minor, goes immediately into a minor key, but it's got the same silence. I just wondered if he knew the Haydn Quartet. Well, I think he probably did know the Haydn Quartet because there's even more. So that's the first movement, another subversive thing. The most extraordinary movement of all, well, you, I shouldn't say that really because it'd be hard to top the surprise of the second movement with its improvisation and its Hungarian gypsy style. But what do you expect in a finale of a string quartet? What sort of piece of music are you going to hear if you're sitting there listening? What's, what are you going to get 99% of the time? Slow or fast? It's going to be quick. It's going to be quick, isn't it? It's going to be a fast movement. But this is what you get. And then it repeats. And then you might say to yourself, well, it's fine, because what I might expect also is a slow introduction to something which is quicker. That's fine, isn't it? But you don't get that. You get this. This must be one of the most sublime moments in Haydn, I think, and perhaps because it most strongly reminds you of Mozart. to how high the cello goes as well. Down, priming up. So on. 
sorry to stop it because it's so sublime, isn't it? And it reminds you of Mozart, I think, because two things, the inner parts, the sort of um, gentle throbbing, it's sort of... Yeah, we know about gentle throbbing, don't we? The so-called Elvira Madigan Concerto. But I don't, I, everyone's forgotten the film now, surely. It's the 21st Piano Concerto. Now, um, this is... Um, <laughs> are you the right generation? Yes. Yeah, I can say looking around. Yeah, the film you do. Good, good. You don't see it, haven't seen it? No, not for ages. Um, th this is um, obviously a slow movement because, in a sense, what's he done in the real, in place of the slow movement, he's written a sort of introduction to a minuet, a gypsy improvisatory introduction to a minuet. So the whole quartet is all over the place, isn't it? It really is, in terms of um, order and how you expect things to behave. Now, here's the biggest shock of all. Now, th at this moment, you know it's not Mozart. Would you get, would you, you'd still think Mozart, I think, wouldn't you? And you might even think Mozart here. Uh, because what he does is repeats what you've just heard, only in C major, uh, sorry, in C minor instead of in C major. C minor. Now, not in his wildest dreams would Mozart have done what Haydn is about to do, ever. Partly because it's breaking lots of rules. That's a shocker. Just, I'll just play it again. It's this moment here. And what he's done is gone from C, ma C minor up a semitone. Yeah. And shall I tell you why you mustn't do that? Has anyone done, did anyone do here, who, here do O-level harmony? Yeah. Right. Now, um, when you... A long time ago. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Everything's a long time ago, isn't it, when you reach a certain stage. But, um, but um, what you would have um, uh, possibly remembered is that you would have received red, as we did in those days, red marks, re <laughs> scrawled all over the page, uh, for consecutive octaves and fifths. Yeah? You're not allowed to have consecutive octaves. In other words, in harmony, say if you're going from that um, to this, yeah? and you have your tenor and bass voice down here, and you do that, it sounds very bare, doesn't it? So it's not allowed. So actually, you're not allowed to do that. And you're not allowed to have octaves like this. You're not allowed to... Again, for the same reason. It's bare. But if you're, the thing is, if you're going from C flat, C major to um, C major to D flat, it's almost impossible to avoid consecutive fifths. And what Haydn does is actually, he's very clever. He does this. Okay, because if he'd have done this, that would have been consecutive fifths. Now, I can't tell you, you might not believe me, but um, I can't tell you how strange this might appear, but even composers up to Schoenberg avoided consecutive fifths in their harmony. Even when Schoenberg was writing tonal music, he would have, he didn't, you didn't want to do it. it. Brahms, you won't get them in Brahms or Wagner, yeah? You avoid it. So of course Haydn would have avoided it very assiduously, but he doesn't. Well, he sort of avoids it, he sort of sidesteps it. But the whole point is that um, um, a, a change of key up a semitone is really, really unusual. 
Yeah, such a strikingly strange sound. Of course, he gets his, you know, you get, I'll just play it again and then go on a little bit, and you'll see how he, he sort of worms his way out of the situation very cleverly. So we have here a fully developed slow movement in the place of a finale. Yes. Now, when does this next happen? When, do, when, when in a symphonic work, and a string quartet is effectively a symphonic work in that it's structured like a symphony and a piano sonata, can anyone think? Mm, no, not a no. It's, it's so much later than that. It's Mahler. Okay, Mahler in his ninth symphony. He's the last movement is an adagio and the third symphony actually. But no, it didn't really occur to me, but then sort of Tchaikovsky's Pathetic Symphony. You know, the last movement is, um, is an adagio. Actually, Tchaikovsky, perhaps, Pathetic, <coughs> that might be a good... Yeah, but it's later in the 19th century. It's, and and Han, as Hans Keller says, everything that, you, that subsequently happen in, happened in music, which is sort of, um, you know, innovatory, in any, innovative in any sort of way, you can always trace it back to Haydn. It's always Haydn that started it, Yeah. So then, okay, you're going along, it's, you're, full of, you're getting very much in the mood for this um, sublime, beautiful music, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing, amazing, amazingly wonderful and all that stuff. And then... think what would you then expect would you when you hear the presto and that's tip who was it who mentioned the fact that Haydn doesn't usually write cantabile long melodies there's there's a good example of a Haydn-esque melody isn't it ba -ba -ba just a little motif ba -ba 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 -ba, over and over again nothing else in fact and you might expect him to finish on a presto note mightn't you I mean he could bring it to a, a grand close couldn't he and excite everyone with a bum 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 that's what you might expect but he doesn't The next note he introduces um, in the first violin part is very, very beautiful. And you need to know why, okay? You need to know why it's so beautiful. It's not good enough just to enjoy it, is it? Not here. <laughs> okay. Okay, you're going along. So he's, your setup, you're, what you're expecting, of course, is a repeat of the Mozartian music. He wouldn't, Mozart, Haydn wouldn't have used that phrase, would he? He would say, I'm going to write some Mozartian music. You know? <laughs> but, but it is Mozartian because. 
It's sort of, um, the, I think perhaps the other reason is it's sort of like uh, an opera aria, isn't it? You know, like the accompaniment to an opera aria, which is very Mozartian. Now, what he does is to... OK, he's, so he's laying down uh, the beat as he did for the beginning. So he does this. This is the beginning of the movement. OK, he can't go back to that now because he's got to, he's, he's got to stop, hasn't he? He's been going on for long enough. Um, and what he does is to introduce the, uh, the harmony of the subdominant over the tonic chord. So the tonic chord is creeping up. You don't want to get into the dominant too much because it introduces too much um, tension into the music, you know, because then you'll want to go that. So what he's trying to do is to bring the music to a rest because, after all, the whole piece has been about n what you're not led to expect. So here's something that you could be led to expect, which is the, this wonderful note. Yes, yeah, which is a B-flat. So it steered the music towards the subdominant key. But the, 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 the good thing is, is that the chord of C, we're in the key of C major, is also the root note of the um, chord of C7, which is the dominant of the subdominant. <laughs> yeah? Now, that what, so what I'm telling you is that the, the, the tonic is the dominant of the subdominant which is four. So it, in other words, if you introduce um, near the end of a piece, in, especially in classical form, a subdominant, it, it doesn't destabilise the music too much because the root note is still there. So you see what I mean? So here's the root note in the cello. And what you hear in this whole passage, every two bars is that, well, sometimes even more than that, the note C, okay? But the B flat gives you this wonderful poignant moment that perhaps you're going to go away, but you don't. Do you know what I mean? It introduces, in other words, it's a dissonance which is then easily resolved. But it's extraordinarily beautiful and poignant when it comes. And needless to say, you'll have to, realize, you'll have to um, think that my enthusiasm for this quartet is quite boundless, really. It's one of his greatest, I think. You know. But then there are 44 others. <laughs> but this is very unique, because the uniqueness is the real... Um, the consistency of its, um, you know, innovation, yeah, and sort of undermining everything, you know, the way that he sort of undermines everything you expect but creates this amazing, amazingly beautiful piece. Here it is. So, first five. Of course, as we mentioned last week, you can end a string quartet quietly because you don't need to please the public. Right, there. Doing, this is obviously very innovative. Yes, there. yes. Is there any record of how it was received? No. Because it must have been quite shocking. Yep, yep. But everything else was as well with Haydn, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, he shocks you again and again and again with so many times. But not enough to get the sack. Not enough. No, I think there's, because, because the, um, the reception of uh, um, Haydn's music is bound up with the, well, mostly the symphonies, and particularly when he came to London. 
you know, but within the Esterhazy Palace, he was a working musician and it was not open to the wider world. You know, he, was, he hadn't thrown himself, he, he was a very different position to Mozart, who was, you know, freelance in Vienna, who was giving himself open to the, um, you know, to the wider musical world and the, and the audience, wider audiences who would come in and listen. But again, the string quartet's a different thing. It's, it's, I think we still think people had concerts. They didn't have concerts as such, not for string quartets. So, so the reception would have been amongst the players who would have thought, what great fun it is to play this amazing music, you know, because it's the pleasure of playing, isn't it, as well? Yes, completely. Yes, absolutely. In a nutshell, that's it. Right. Okay. Finish. And that's <laughs> it. Right. Well, it's not. I mean, but, but I don't want to. I, I mean, Haydn is particularly subversive, but so is they. They all are. Yeah, Mozart's the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. And I think um, I think Mozart's sometimes harder to uh, appreciate because he's slightly more subtle. I don't want to use the word subtle in a, He just is a more diff a different sort of character, isn't he? Because the other thing about that amazing quintet that I played the beginning of is that, although um, it's not, not something you hear very strongly in the music, the beginning is made up of a five-bar phrase. So it's one, two, three, four, five, one. Okay, so what he's doing is giving the plainest musical material, you know, just blocks of chords, C major and G major, but he's actually making them into a five-bar phrase. That's a subtle form of subversion, isn't it? Three plus two, yeah? And we tend not to hear music. We tend to want music to fit into our four-bar phrase pattern, which almost romantic music is much more regular than classical music in that respect. So in other words, these composers are trying to find a way to subvert the rather plain style of classicism. Because one of the things that's very obvious about the difference between Bach and his sons is that their music is much more simple than his is. Yeah, they didn't write these complex fugues, did they? You know, they were trying to write a, a new style of music which was simpler and more harmonically based. So, so you have to find a way of making it interesting, in a nutshell, because there's lots of classical music that's a bit sort of, you know, it can be a bit sort of background, can't it? You know, early Haydn, Mozart symphonies, some of the piano sonatas, they're not, they're not great, great classical music, but once they started, once they got the idea that you can play around with the system, then it starts to get really interesting. And of course, who does more playing around with the system than Beethoven? Um, now, of course, I'm very constrained in time, and I want to cover a lot of ground. And we last year, last week, we heard the first movement of the C minor quartet, Opus 18, Number Four, which again had lots of subversive things, like these crashing chords, and that's violins playing. That's you know, it's all very sort of. Um, and a general angry activity, uh, um, virulence of emotional expression and all that sort of stuff. Um, the early quartets of Beethoven fit into that nice package of being all in Opus 18, uh, 18, 18, 1 to 6. You've got them cracked, okay? Then you've got to know the Razumovsky string quartets, which is the Opus 59, dedicated to Count Razumovsky, who was the Russian ambassador to Vienna. And his stipulation was that uh, he should include in each of the um, quartets a Russian folk song, yeah, which he didn't. Okay, so there we are. <laughs> well, he did in two of them. Yeah, he did in two of them. It, yes, yes. And in the Opus 59, number two... Oh, how's it go? Um, it's like, anyway, it's the same music as Mozartsky uses in Boris Goodenough. 
So you get a sudden shock when you're listening to Boris Good Enough and you hear this Russian folk song. It's Beethoven. Uh, we'll come back to me anyway. Um, um, but I'm, um, one of the things about the Opus 59 string quartets is their expansion of the musical language. And that's the same with all Beethoven's middle period works. You know, the Eroica Symphony, the first movement of the Eroica Symphony is longer than many Haydn symphonies on its own. Everything's got bigger bigger, ex more expansive. Um, the fourth and fifth piano concertos in particular. The fifth piano concerto, the emperor, feels like a symphony, doesn't it? It's very symphonic in its um, ambition. And as with these wonderful string quartets, just I'm, I'm going to give a brief, because I want to move on um, to something else uh, a little bit um, uh, later. But uh, um, the beginning of the um, Opus 59, number one string quartet, the Razumovsky number one, so-called, um, shows you at its very outset that it's going to be a big piece because the first chord that you hear, you hear the tune, first of all, in the cello, yeah, it's quite unusual. Haydn would have done it, of course. Opus 20, number two, the cello starts, has the tune. Can you remember that last week? Long time ago, isn't it? Um, but not quite, not as an expansive tune as this. And then the, the violins. Have an accompaniment. But the whole tonality is based... Um, the chord that you hear is the first inversion of the tonic. Sorry, the second inversion, not the first inversion, the tonic, the second version is of the tonic chord, which is very unstable, but actually makes the music move along very well. And you don't actually hear the um, tonic chord until about 30 seconds into the music. You'll hear it anyway. Here we go. It, it will become apparent. So he spends all that time just getting towards. He's just done a gigantic, all he's done is that gigantic cadence like that at the beginning of the piece. So that's all about expansion. Um, but what I wanted to um, uh, concentrate on today is um, one of the late quartets, because they have this reputation, don't they, of being difficult. And I never really understand why. Only because some people, some people say they're difficult. And... Um, I think you need to explore your own reasons for finding them difficult and then actually find that they're not, really. In fact, you might find the middle quartet slightly more impenetrable in a way, especially when you first hear, the, hear them. So they're, more, more, in a sense, more complex. Um, what is unusual uh, about the last quartets, there are five of them, and then there's the Grosser Fugue, which is the um, appendix, or the preferred finale, perhaps, by Beethoven, to the Opus 130 string quartet, which is in B-flat major. And in fact, the, uh, the one that he finally wrote for it, because he thought the Grosser was probably a bit much, is a bit... The, the, the parallel is Bach's D minor partita for solo violin, which ends with a gigue. And then, at the end... Well, it doesn't end with a gigue. You think it's going to end with a gigue. And then he writes a chaconne, which lasts for 15 minutes <laughs> at the end of it, which is a out of scale with the piece. And the Grosser Fugue is also out of scale with the string quartet. So this, the six, it's the sixth overlong movement, and he writes a much lighter movement later. Um, so um, this, that quartet has six movements. Opus 132 in A minor has five movements, and Opus 131 in C sharp minor, which many people say Beethoven thought was his greatest work himself, has seven movements. Um, and what... Sorry. 
No, that's 132. Yes, Opus 132 has a slow movement, which is based on modal music, on, on Palestrina. Uh, he'd been studying, the, as he said, the ancient modes, and he writes it in the Lydian mode, um, and it has a very sort of pure feeling to it. And then in the, it has a middle section, which is in the um, D major, I think it's in D major, uh, which he writes, um, you know, um, uh, th thankful feelings on recovering from an illness. Yeah, uh, so, so that's that one. But the C-sharp minor um, is um, in, in seven movements, and it's, and it's, it's very unusual piece in terms of its structure. And if we think of Haydn as being subversive, in terms of the classical style and classical string quartet, this doesn't obey any rules that you expect. But then Beethoven doesn't, does he? I mean... The first movement of a piano sonata, isn't it? When you expect a fast movement, you have an adagio. Although, in fact, that movement is in um, sonata form. And I play that... Uh, why? What key is it in? C sharp, C sharp minor. It's the same key as the as the string. It's the only other piece that he wrote in the key of string uh, of um, C sharp minor. So this uh, um, Moonlight Sonata, Opus Twenty Seven, Number Two, and this String Quartet, Opus One Hundred Thirty One. Um, the the first thing that you notice about it is that it starts with a slow movement, which is in fact you very quickly understand that it's a fugue. more it's a slow fugue yeah usually um, in classical music fugues had been either avoided or used for energetic purposes so for example um, composers sometimes are fugal in development sections yeah in order to move the music along fugue is does everyone know what a fugue is sort of <laughs> yes it's, um, it's, it, it's a piece based on the imitation of a tune in various voices so the first voice you hear the soprano part, the violin. The same tune, or sort of, almost the same tune, is heard then in another voice. In this case, it's the second violin, or the alto part. And it's the same tune. But meanwhile, of course, the first voice carries on. And then, third voice, which is the viola, or tenor and then finally the bass voice or the cello yeah now several interesting things to notice about that first of all it's slight resemblance to the c-sharp minor fugue in Bach's 48 book one yeah the same series of intervals um, a, a, a right a, a semitone 
and a third. Semitone and a third. Yeah. And both of, the, both of those fugue subjects sound dissonant. Yeah, even though it's, you, you can have dissonant harmonies, but you can also have melodies with dissonances in them. In that this note, to that note, is a dissonant interval. And that's another weird thing, isn't it? Because if I play this to you, yeah, and then play those two intervals, would you say they're dissonant or consonant? You will 100% agree with me that it's a consonant, won't you? But then if I play this note, and then follow it with those two, isn't it so weird that that sounds so dissonant? And that's because that interval that is not C to E, but it's B sharp to E. Yeah. So again, again, it's this business of the notes not being um, the same, even though they're on the same place on the piano. It's not the same. B sharp is not the same as the C. Anyway, um, and then in Bach's, sorry, Beethoven's few subject, you'll notice that some of the notes are accented. And then, and just bear in mind that the notes that are accented are A and D, and they occur all the time in this subject. And also that the fugue subject has two parts, has a top, those four notes, and then it has a much more sort of conciliatory lead away, doesn't it? Which sounds as though it's reached some sort of agreement about its status you know it's not quite so it's not quite so tortured the beginning is very painful and then it's sort of dissolves away into into some sort of tranquility um, so so that and the fact that the two notes are accented is very important to the large scale structure because what beethoven's doing is somehow um he's not rejecting but he's experimenting with forms which were not just sonata forms so the late quartets and the late piano sonatas are not quite so driven by that sonata, that obsession with sonata structure that you have in the middle period and early period. And also an awakening, burgeoning interest in the idea of fugue, which was generally not fashionable. Yeah, fugues were not, fugues had been done. Bach did all the fugues you ever need, really, didn't he? And more, you know, a lot. Fantastic. Who could, who, why would you need to write more fugues? But what, what you need to do uh, I mean, the and the reason for um, the, the rejection for the fugue is that it's not very good for creating large-scale structures in music because it's sort of it's like a fuel. It, it, the, the length of the fugue depends on how long the subject is, and there's only a certain amount of time that you can have for a subject. There's a, a ridiculous exception, of course, in Beethoven's Hammerclavier Sonata. The fugue subject is like this. <laughs> And so on and so on and so on and so on. It goes on for it goes on for many many notes, yeah, and therefore creates a great long fugue and very epic and problematic fugue to play. That's no question about that. Um, but um, but it does. It, once the fugue has stopped, it, it's got nowhere else to go. It can't it, sonata structure works by moving around harmonically, but the fugue doesn't quite work like that. It's so dependent on this interrelationship of voices, and of course it's also very complex, isn't it? This intertwining of voices is very complex to hear. Anyway, um, but so this first movement is, is a slow and very melancholy fugue. Um, but it has wonderful, um, some wonderful um, serene moments as well. So um, this is picking up at, th at th about three minutes um, into, into the piece. And what he does is to use the second half of the fugue subject like this. Thank you. 
Now we hear the main theme of the fugue, but in the major, very high up. on. It's so sublime, isn't it? Um, you then need to go and read a book by a man called J.W.N. Sullivan called Beethoven, His Spiritual Development, which is a really fascinating little book. And J.W.N. Sullivan, as you will read in the book at the back, reading the back of the book, was in fact, I like the idea, it was written in Chobham in Surrey. He was the son of a poor Irish sailor and he was born in 1886 and then died in 1937. And he was a mathematician, philosopher of science, reviewer for the times and an amateur pianist and it's a really really fascinating book i'll just read a little bit about it because he talks about this quartet he's not a specialist musician but he's got lots of interesting things to say this quartet in c sharp minder is the greatest of beethoven's quartets as he himself thought it also is the most mystical of the quartets and the one where the mystical vision is most perfectly sustained it counts seven movements but regarded as an, an regarded as an organic unity it is the most complete of Beethoven works. Because the point about the seven movements is that it is, um, they are joined up. Yep, so the piece doesn't stop, it's a continuous piece. There's no stop, end, cough, breathe, you know, turn the pages. It's all one continuous piece. For the purpose of description, however, it is convenient to divide it into three parts. The opening fugue is the most superhuman piece of music that Beethoven has ever written. It is the complete unfaltering rendering of, into music of what we could call the mystic vision. It has that serenity which, as Wagner said, speaking of these quartets, passes beyond beauty. And you hear that in that passage, don't you? Really extraordinary. It has this, yeah, and nowhere else in music are we made so aware as here of a state of consciousness surpassing our own, where our own problems do not exist and to which even our highest aspirations, those that we can formulate, provide no key. And so on. It's really, it's quite fanciful, flowery writing, but it's quite inspiring to read it. You know, and this music does speculate uh, on the divine and mystical idea of, of um, transcendental things, doesn't it? You know, it really does take you beyond the everyday. And of course, you know, there are two, two things which make it really compelling. One is the idea of the quartet itself, which is a very sort of hermetic unit. You know, he's not trying to, he can, he's writing within it rather than without it. You know, the Ninth Symphony is obviously a piece for public consumption. It's a political statement. And you hear that in the music, don't you? It's simplicity and directness. But in this music, you don't get simplicity and directness. You have complex thoughts. And, um, and the other thing, of course, is his deafness, because he's, in a sense, hermetically sealed himself. But that's the, the one thing that we should never think about Beethoven. And um, I was actually, I was, I, was given, I was asked by someone to give a talk on how did Beethoven's deafness affect his composition? I thought, how the hell am I going to know that? How can, I, how can you possibly know? How can you know? If I was deaf, it might help. Um, but um, how would you know how it affected? Because there's no, there's no question that he didn't write down things um, that he couldn't hear, if you see what I mean, internally. He couldn't hear them outwardly. In, in, you know, he couldn't physically hear it, but he couldn't... We also have, as a musician, you know, if, you, if you're a trained musician, you can look at music on the train, and you perhaps sometimes occasionally see someone with a score going... 
you know, and actually can hear the music. As, they, as you can hear the music in your head, because that's what you're trained to do. You're, everyone can do that if, <coughs> if you've been playing for long enough, um, studying for long enough. Um, so he wasn't writing accidentally crazy music. You know, if it's crazy, it's designed to be crazy. You know. uh, but it generally isn't crazy. It's just incredibly, extraordinarily subversive, subversive innovative, all those things, yeah. Um, the last, just, just a, this is, I can only give you a brief glimpse of this amazing piece. Towards the end of the piece, um, the, the f I mean, he does these structures, you know, he uses these same techniques that Bach does. So you can have the fugue um, in diminution or in augmentation. So if it's, uh, as it appears normally, the subject goes like this. But then if you double the length of the notes, you get this. And that enables you to soak the texture with a motive that you all recognise, because you all recognise that tune, but it's moving at different speeds. In fact, it feels at this moment as though it's moving in three different speeds, very slow in the cello, at the normal speed in the violin, and then the viola and second violin have it um, double speed. Yeah? So it's like time moving at four, three different, um, three different, um, in three different ways, at three different speeds, really, although it's, not quite, it's an illusion, of course because there is still one, one unifying pulse underneath. So here's our first violin. Sorry, viola. first violin and then the cello comes in with the augmented version And he keeps, in this passage, he keeps emphasising the note D over and over again, as you shall hear. And again. And at the end of the movement, you've first two things have happened. First of all, you've gone from the minor to the major, which, of course, any Baroque composer would have done, wouldn't they? The, Starting the minor, you wouldn't have ended in the minor. You would have ended on a major chord. Bach does it in his C-sharp minor fugue as well. But then there's no break, and you get this extraordinary 
octave in the violin, which is then followed by... So on. We will run out of time. I'm, I can sense it. But um, the music goes into a, into a quick movement, um, which is a semitone higher than what you've just experienced. So the C, you've on, been in C sharp, you go to D major. That's very unclassical, but it's exactly what Haydn did in his quartet when he went from C minor to D flat major. And he Haydn did it even more radically. Except that in terms of the overall harmonic structure of the piece, to make one movement in C sharp and the next in D major is very, very unusual. Really unusual. Because the relationship is very... There is not really a relationship. Except that, of course, that he's gone on and on and on about the note D in the fugue... He keeps repeating the note D as though it's got some... Place to 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 to, to, to um, play some some place to play some um, role to play in the movement, and of course the point is that what Beethoven is doing in this in this late great music is um, really trying to impose a sense of unity and organic whole on on this very disparate music, you know, because the character of this going from this. It, if it is difficult to listen to, it's because in the beginning of um, when you start listening to a piece, you don't expect slow contemplative music, do you? You don't expect that. That's what you can get later. You know, really don't start music with a slow contemplative piece. You tend to start with action and dynamicism. That's the classical sonata thing. But in, to start with a contemplative fugue is very, very unusual and quite difficult. But then you come out of it... ..and you're in the world of the nursery rhyme, really, aren't you? I mean, it's very... it is, isn't it? Folk-like simplicity about it and rising up. It's almost as though he's, um, as it were, in terms spiritual or whatever you like to call it, I mean, I don't really like using those terms, but um, he's um, escaped from the world that he inhabits in the first movement to somewhere much better, certainly much less dark. Um, and, it's, and also it goes along in, um, it's in 6-8. It's dancey, isn't it? It has a dance simplicity. And then we come to the end of that, and then we're in for another shock. It's an operatic recitative 
and it's finding, it's sort of setting the theme, setting the stage for, gosh, it's my iPad. They take over, don't they, these devices? <laughs> it's like, uh, who was the, the man that got, uh, the defence minister got interrupted by Siri? Yeah, yeah. Serves him right. <laughs> That's right, but perhaps it serves me right too. That's, um, anyway, it's a very short... So, so in a sense, what you've just heard, the third movement, you know, which lasts for some 40 seconds or so, is the, um, as it were, setting the scene for this theme, which is the form... Uh, it forms this um, theme for the set of variations which follows. Just, just in terms of string quartet writing, it's rather wonderful. It would be much, much better if the quartet were here. I'm sorry that we don't have one. But um, uh, he passes the, um, the musical line antiphonally between the violin and the viola. Yeah? Uh, sorry, between the first and the second violin. Yeah? So if they were sitting next to each other, or even better, on opposite sides, you would hear the music go from side to side. I don't know if it works with the speakers. Perhaps it does. So if you just hear the beginning of the theme, it starts with the first violin, second violin, First violin, second violin, first violin. And it's one of those, um, there's a quality in Beethoven's late music of sort of hymn-like trans, transcendental something, well, I don't know, you know, but, it, but it's like the piano sonatas, you have this, don't you? It's always very pure, harmonically, or in the very last sonata, this. has a unique quality about it, doesn't it, which this theme definitely has. And then there's a set of, um, uh, uh, of six variations um, uh, and a finale, uh, um, which, is, which is the longest movement um, of, the whole, of the whole quarter, and it for forms the centrepiece. And interestingly enough, the second movement was in... The first movement hinted strongly at the notes D and A, D and A, and the first movement led to the second movement, which was in D major, and the third movement is in... Uh, the, sorry, that's the fourth movement, really, isn't it? Because you've had the, in the third movement's the little um, operatic recitative into it. The fourth movement's in A major. So both those keys that he so strongly hinted at formed part of the overall structure. So here we are in A major. Um, I'm just going to give a, a bit of... There's, um, the second variation speeds up a little bit, and it's got some... It's sort of jazzy. But you, there's the... <laughs> everyone knows this, don't they? <laughs> piano sonata and everyone thinks he's doing boogie woogie suddenly you know uh dee ba da ba da ba da it's extraordinary it does sound extraordinarily jazzy and he does my brother got told off for playing it on darwin's wife's piano really for playing that honestly nothing like that here it's late beethoven late yes what's more it's late beethoven isn't it it couldn't be more holy could it you know you should get the prayer mats out but listen to the end of this. He does a very, very similar thing here. This is, a, you know, for a string quartet, a little bit of jazz, really. This is Pumoso, so it's a little bit quicker. Um, and, I mean, we haven't got time to describe, but you will hear the harmonies of the theme underneath this, this music. This is catching it somewhere in the variation.
the syncopations that help. Sometimes the music seems very daring as well, almost daringly still um, and daringly nothing's happening type of music. Yeah, you think, what's going on here? This is variation, part of variation six. It's really almost just a drone. And you had, of course, a drone in the, when you hear the theme itself, um, the, the drone consisted of the viola and cello doing. And he sort of isolates those notes like this. Oh, sorry, no, he doesn't. Where is it? No, slightly further back, sorry. Here. It's interesting as well because that gives you um, an, an, an um, illustration of how the quartet can play chords because the cellos are playing, the cello plays two notes and the viola across the strings can play two and then the second violin plays two. So the four players can create eight notes like that, yeah? Which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Beethoven's writing, of course, is much more experimental in these quartets you know, for the players themselves, which creates a lot of difficulties. Um, and I, we have to, I'm, I know I'm going to get pushed out and I'll be in trouble if I don't, but um, I'm just going to give you one extraordinary other moment of, the, of this quartet, which is, I suppose, I suppose, the other side of the coin from this transcendental um, reflectiveness. Um, it's this. That's not the music of a man who's ailing or infirm, is it? I mean, the very opposite. And the most extraordinary thing of all, which I must admit, when I, I can't remember the first time I heard it, but I remember the first time I heard it, I must have been very shocked, and so will you be if you haven't heard it before, is this. Towards the end of the scherzo, this is the scherzo movement, digga digga dig, although it's in two and not three, but it's definitely very playful, he does this. 
Do you know how they achieve that effect? They're playing on the bridge. It's called sul ponticello. So instead of, you know, normally if you're uh, playing your violin or cello, you're playing halfway between the bridge and the fingerboard, roughly. But if you put your bow right on the bridge, you get this sound. And they come back to norm normality. Um, and it's extraordinary because I can't think of any other composer, even in the 19th century, who did that. It's the 20th century composers are full of that sort of trick, of course, you know, because they want their music to sound weird and funny. But actually, <laughs> but so does, so does he at that time. Um, I think we must stop now. I think it's too, there's something I need to say about the finale, so I'm afraid we will have to say it at the beginning of next week. But I don't think, so, so to be resumed. Thank you very much. <laughs>